All right, so there is a book that I have recommended to more Christians than any other over the last several years, and it's titled, All That Is in God, Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism. Now, it's a short book, it's less than 140 pages, but it packs a powerful punch. And in my opinion, it needs to be required reading for every seminary professor, seminary student, and, and even every pastor in the evangelical community. Now, when I started this channel, this podcast, I knew I had to have the author of this book on as one of my first guests. So I am absolutely delighted to be joined today by Dr. James Dolezal. James, welcome to Think for Christ. Anthony, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me today. Um, would, you, would you mind just taking maybe a minute or two just to introduce yourself to the Think for Christ community? Sure, happy to. I'm a uh, professor of theology at Cairn University in just a little bit north of uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And um, I think beyond that, married three children uh, and have taught at Cairn now for a little over 10 years uh, prior to that was doing uh, graduate work at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia and um, have a great interest in classical theism, uh, as as do you, and I hope many of your listeners, and so thrilled to sit down and talk about this today. All right. Well, the uh, subtitle of your book is Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism. So, James, what is classical Christian theism? Well, I mean, maybe the way that its name indicates, it's something of a broad consensus. Classical is always relative, I suppose, uh, to where you stand in history. It's at some point classical was contemporary. Um, and I hope classical will be contemporary again uh, <laughs> now. But uh, we're talking about a certain hardcore set of convictions with regard to God's being and nature. And then when we talk about classical Christian theism, we mean also with regard to his triunity. Um, and it's it's not a uh, it's it's a hardcore set of convictions that that really hangs together, not just logically, but in a in a metaphysically necessary way. And if I could if I could put my finger on that one thing uh, that they're all committed to that these classical Christian theists that gives rise to a set of doctrines or or um, understandings of God's nature. It would be uh, maybe positively his absoluteness, uh, negatively his irreducibility. Uh, now, why be committed to either of those things, especially as a Christian? Why should we be committed to it? The, the way a lot of the um, early Protestant confessions put it following the language of the 39 articles of religion, that God is most absolute? Um, as opposed to what exactly? Um, relatively absolute things, uh, like an angel, for instance, would be a relative absolute. Um, they aren't as contingent as you and I are because they're not composed of of material and immaterial. They're purely immaterial creatures. So they're they're more absolute and stable in being, so to speak, uh, than you and I are. But God is most absolute, uh, the one who is utterly irreducible in being, that he can't be as it were, broken down metaphysically uh, to, to units of being more fundamental than himself. As far as Christian commitment to this, you could get there, by the way, uh, through a kind of um, 
traditional cosmological argument, something like what you find in in St. Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways, um, you could get to this conviction there. For Christians, we can also come to this conviction simply by our doctrine of creation, uh, because we believe that creation is ex nihilo, that God is not tinkering with some pre-existing stuff in which he's negotiating a relationship for himself, but he's actually making everything not God to be in its absolute and existential sense. Because of that absolute existential primacy of being, God himself must not be susceptible to causal explanations. That is to say, if you ask the question, why God? It sounds like a causal question, but really you're asking what's the reason for God or what accounts for God? And the answer is God does. Um, not because he's self-made, a thing absolutely can't make itself uh, because of things like you've got to be in order to do. Uh, and if making is a doing, then there's got to be being that underlies it, in which case then God, God's doing cannot precede God's being um, it, in that order. So th there are convictions like this that kind of are there in the Christian tradition, uh, hemming in and guiding what we say, but it really comes down to this. And I think this is a general Christian commitment uh, if we press sort of the, the Christian in the pew, is there something not God that is the reason for or cause of God? I think the average Christian just says instinctively, no, not because he has studied Thomas's cosmological argument, but probably because he's just read his Bible and he reads, in the beginning, God. Uh, and then countless passages after that, which affirm God's absolute primary causality of all things apart from whom nothing. Um, and I think that basic Christian conviction, even if unarticulated, does result in an affinity for the hard core of classical Christian theism, which is that God is not reducible to causes not God, and that God himself isn't self-caused given that he's the first. I would say no. everything else we say, Anthony, is really riffing off of that theme. That's what's key. That's what's making it all hang together. Absolutely. I, I love the way that um, Edward Fazer actually puts this in his article in the book Classical Theism and the Rutledge Studies of the Philosophy of Religion, a book that you actually contributed uh, a chapter in on divine impassibility, which we'll talk about that here in a minute, which was fantastic, by the way. But um, Fazer says that what is classical theism? Well, it's the belief that God is the ultimate reality in the order of being. And he is the ultimate explanation in the order of, um, of uh, knowing. So I think that's a great way to sum it up that as Christians, if God is not ultimate, if he is not the ultimate being, then we ought to be looking for the ultimate being still. We ought to be looking uh, what is in back of God, what is behind him. Because in order to explain reality, we've got to have something ultimate. And as Christians, this is non-negotiable. God has to be that which is most ultimate in reality. So I, I think that is that's great. Um, in the first, that's a, great the, that's a great chapter, by the way, just giving an orientation uh, to this to this topic. Yeah. So in the first chapter of your book, um, you address models of theism, and there you say that uh, there are two distinctly different models of Christian theism that are presently vying for the heart and mind of, of evangelical Christianity. One of them is, is classical theism that you just introduced here, um, and, and the one that you're espousing and defending in this book. The other is what you call theistic mutualism. What is theistic mutualism, and how does it differ from classical theism? 
Uh, it sometimes goes under the name theistic personalism. So if you're looking in the literature, uh, when Brian Davies or others uh, uh, in, in that sort of modern Thomas talk about theistic personalism, I'm I'm more or less talking about the same thing. Uh, I chose the term mutualism only because mutualism has a has a connotation of give and take. Uh, in which one party gives to another and another receives then. And then inversely, that party that receives is also a giver and gives something back to the giver. And so God may be in this relationship for theistic mutualists, the primary cause, but he's not the ultimate cause in the sense that he himself also receives causal operation upon himself. In other words, God is among the things that are done unto um, if I can say it that way. Uh, and theistic mutualism has, uh, I don't want to suggest that it's some kind of monolithic movement. Uh, it's certainly a, it's a, it's a nickname I've given a sort of commitment that has a lot of different expressions. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe on the, the most progressive end would be something like an evolutionary theism, uh, almost a kind of pantheism where the world's development and God's development are the same. But then that's not really, if it's pantheism, it's not really mutualism because there is no real distinction right. between God and the world. It just sort of collapses into a monism uh, at that point. So I don't think that mutualism would describe pantheism. But if you if you step back from pantheism to something like um, process theism, uh, and this would be a more extreme for or process philosophy and process theism. I'm thinking here of Alfred North Whitehead uh, and then later in, in North America, Charles Hartshorn, where God is involved with the world in a way where the world is acting upon God so as to actualize his potential. God is literally becoming what he was not apart from the world's causal operation upon him so that there are aspects of reality actualities of being in God, which are in fact the effects of creatures causally operating upon God, rendering God to be in such and such a way. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe the most uh, brazen of all of those would be Whitehead, who says, this is nearly a quote, I think, uh, it is as true to say that God creates the world as that the world creates God. Mm -hmm. uh, and what and what he means is there's a mutualistic actualizing give and take relationship moving in two directions between God and the world. God is God is a God is a great and wonderful relative being in the world relative to the causal operations of other things upon himself, even though he's superior to them in all sorts of ways. Um, Hartshorn more or less adapts that uh, to theology more broadly and says that's what the Christian ought to endorse. Um, now that seems pretty extreme, especially because I'm I'm in this book at least discussing evangelicals and evangelicals have rightly been wary of any language like that. I mean, it should sound offensive to our ears that it's mm -hmm. as true to say God creates the world as that the world creates God. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think most Christians, even those, even many of whom I probably am critiquing in this book, um, would share with me a revulsion of that notion. Nevertheless, and then here's the kicker, I suppose, um, in some sort of softened and highly qualified way, this notion that the world or creatures in it act causally upon God has in fact uh, ensconced itself in modern evangelical conservative Christian theism. 
um, those that would never claim open theism or process theism uh, as uh, their outlook. Uh, and yet they do believe, nevertheless, that God is quite literally affected by and acted upon by the world so as to produce alterations of being in him. Um, now, I'm using the language, of, I mean, Anthony, I'm using the language of being here because I think that's sure. what's going on. Often, often the, the explicit language of being or actuality is not identified. In other words, it's it's an inarticulate position, at least as far as being goes. Um, I'm trying to give articulation to the implication of the view. Um, so sure. I'm using a kind of metaphysical, ontological language to describe what the view must mean. Um but I think this is so you have a you have a sliding scale. The question I'm identifying early on in the book is between within among theistic mutualists, there are there are these great galactic battles that go on, but they're not battling the question of mutualism. On that, they are all committed. The world acts upon God in such a way as to produce new states of being in him. Like that's that's the hardcore commitment of every flavor of theistic mutualism. Where they do battle with each other is over the question of whence comes these changes in God, not necessarily, well, they do disagree on who causes them. So like, I'll give you a conservative example. Uh, Karl Barth would be a conservative example and almost in a certain sense, not quite a theistic mutualist in some respects, because Barth will say that God undergoes changes in himself but he's the one who he's the agent who is doing the changing. And so he's agent and patient, sort of like a physician who puts stitches in his own left arm. Uh, he is with his right arm and his medicinal arts. He is the agent from which the healing arts go forth. And with regard to the wound that's being cleansed and sewed, he's the patient. And so, you know, I don't know who gets the bill and who gets paid. Maybe no one. It's a wash. <laughs> but you get the point. Like he's, mm -hmm. he's the doer and the done unto because he's composed of active passive potency. That's Bart's view of God, at least in his more conservative moments, so that there are events in the world for which God produces a corresponding change in himself that correlates to the world. But it's not, I'm thinking of Bart's more, more guarded moments here, but it's not necessarily the world itself that is acting on God. It's God acting on himself in relation to the world that he has ordained and decreed. Uh, I'm not sure of that technically, uh, at least in that version. There are other places in Bart where I think there's definitely mutualism. Definitely his view of the incarnation as constant uh, and that as somewhat constitutive of the person qua person, at least if Bruce McCormick uh, is to be trusted in some of his readings of Bart, would definitely land Bart in a kind of process theism. Right. But the evangelicals that I'm concerned with. Um, actually will say that, no, it, it is the world itself that is acting upon and affecting God. By the world, I mean any agent or doer sure. or thing in it um, that is actually producing the changes in God, and that the reason that we ought not be terribly disturbed by this notion is that God is the one who is, perhaps from all eternity, sovereignly ordaining to be affected in just such a way. And so as and so we're told as long as God is in control of the process that he himself is undergoing, he's a patient in the process. But because he sovereignly is the one who is controlling the agents who are really affecting him, all is well. Right. And this is this is why it appeals I think in a superficial way to so many modern Calvinists. Um, Calvinists like sovereignty. 
That's, that's right. almost yeah. a true. That's a tautology, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, a Calvinist like sovereignty, sovereignty and Calvinism, they just seem to go together. Um, and, it, and there's a tendency to think the more sovereignty, the better. And so someone like John Frame, uh, who I definitely would identify as a theistic mutualist, John Frame will talk about God's lordship, but one of the objects or the subjects, depends on how you want to look at it, of God's lordship is God's own self. So that God is actually Lord of God. Um, and God is sovereign over any, and this is like a self-sovereignty, so that God is controlling the changes within God, even controlling the world to bring the world in such a way that it changes God. Um, and this is a kind of sovereignty of God over God, yeah. which is an interest. I, I think this, this started to sound strange to me, though, Anthony, because I realized in the 16th and 17th century, I couldn't find any Reformed theologians that talk about God's sovereignty as if its object is his own intrinsic life and being. That's a very recent, modern, let us just say, Calvinistic post-Hegelian, a post-Hegelian Calvinism sure. uh, finds this a plausible notion. Um, and so that was, I began to be concerned. Sovereignty was always a relative property. It's something we say about God vis-a-vis -vis the world. It's not something that God exercises over himself intrinsically. Right. I, I think it's helpful to think about um, regulative principles. This is something else that uh, Fazer talks about in that first chapter of the book. Um, he says, for classical theism, the regulative principle is God's ultimacy, right? That is the principle that's going to guide even our hermeneutic in certain places when it comes to theology proper and the task of systematization and so forth. It sounds like for a lot of, of those in the reform community, which I consider myself one of them, uh, the regulative principle so often just becomes the sovereignty of God. And that's the principle that needs to be upheld um, and protected. What about the other theistic mutualists? What about those who, who aren't, um, let's say, persuaded by the reform position? Um, what, do you, what is the motivation for them, do you think, for theistic mutualism? I think, I think of someone like Greg Boyd, an evangelical open theist, or Clark Pinnock, um, also in that camp. There's a, there, there are a couple of concerns that theologians like this raise. Uh, who are who are emphatically not reformed. Uh, one is just uh, this is how they understand they understand that a literal reading of the scripture requires this. And so when Genesis six, six and seven describe God as being grieved in his heart and regretting that he had made man, they read that in a um, emphatically literal way. Um, or in Exodus 34, 14, where, it, after Moses is talking with God uh, and God is going to destroy the children of Israel and Moses intercedes, it's a beautiful passage. And then it says, and so God relented uh, is the word. Now, I think New American Standard translates it, changed his mind. Um, they point to texts like this, of which there are many, and say, look, obviously God is being affected by Moses's intercession. He's And if you're a, if you're a Calvinist, you say, God has sovereignly ordained Moses to operate upon God so as to change God's mind. That's right. Um, which is kind of a strange <laughs> view. But then if you're an open theist, what you might say is God doesn't have exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. And that's actually why the whole encounter is meaningful. And so they'll often appeal to things like, if I already knew what you were going to say to me, Anthony, then dialogue would, would become boredom to the point of 
insufferable tedium. Yeah. Uh, and so how could God be really and genuinely and meaningfully related to us if he knows everything I'm going to say? Why don't we just, that just kind of is a, that's just ice water on the relationship. And anyway, the Bible talks about God in these kind of dialogues. And there are times when God says, now I know. Well, see, God's making discoveries. God's learning things from the world. He's gaining knowledge. And in fact, that's really of the essence of personal relationships. Personal relationships require a mutualistic give and take for them to be meaningful bonds. Uh, and if one party is only giving and the other party is only receiving in that relationship, then it's not really interpersonal. Interpersonal requires that I do for you and you do for me. It does require a kind of um, you know, quid pro quo of this for that. You do this, I do that, um, even if it's all very altruistic and generous. Uh, and I think that there's so there's a concern one on how do we read the Bible literally, and the classical theist, and we should just be open about this. The classical theist is saying in every case where God is interacting with the world, we are to understand this as an accommodation on God's part to the world, so that the world is not really enlightening him, the world isn't really moving him, the world isn't really changing him intrinsically by its operation upon him, so that every one of those is read as an anthropomorphism or anthropopathism, an accommodation of language and even of theophany to humans, um, but that actually we shouldn't read those literally. Any more than we read literally texts about God's nostrils uh, being inflamed or his tummy being upset. Well, three times his bowels turned over within him, um, but God doesn't have bowel trouble and he doesn't actually have a nose and he doesn't really ride around on the backs of angels flying through the sky like Baal might have done. Um, so then, the, you know, the onus is then on the classical theist to give a meaningful interpretation what those passages have to mean something theologically, covenantally, redemptively, historically, um, and that those meanings have to really be there in that text. How can we parse out, so to speak, the literalism, a literal understanding of the imagery, which we're saying shouldn't be taken literally from the from the real theological meaning and significance of those passages. The, the theistic mutualist, like an open theistic, theistic mutualist says, we can't do that. We have to read it literally to get the meaning from the passage. The classical theist would argue, and there's a long literary commentary tradition supporting this, would argue, no, we can get the, the the real true theological point from that passage without reading it hyper-literally. No one reads, I am a rock, and thinks That's that right. God is a dense piece of sedimentary material. But when we do, but when we read that God was grieved in his heart, it's often taken to be literally there was a change of mind or affection somehow in God vis-a-vis -vis the world's operation on him. So that's one concern from the mutualist side is, and you'll find this even among Calvinists and open theists, there are just certain passages that they both want to read in a way that is far more literal than the way the classical tradition would ever have read those texts. And then they just sort of, then they just sort of cross swords on whether God sovereignly ordained and foresaw that this was going to happen or whether it just happened, um, you know, to him. And then he dealt with the hand, you know, after it was, you know, handed out. And then he's just, so that's the question. Often like Bruce Ware, for instance, is very concerned with exhaustive divine foreknowledge, but he fully concedes. And he's, he's emphatic that we should concede to the open theist that God is involved with the world in such a way that the world operates upon and produces changes in God. Um, and that's his whole, he wants to re, he wants to retool 
immutability. And in fact, that's his whole, that's his doctoral dissertation way back at Fuller in the early 80s is a reformulation of divine immutability that allows for mutation in God. He'll qualify it. Well, not essential mutation, you know, which is, I find that sort of trivial in as much as I've never essentially mutated either. That doesn't make, you know, that, and neither has, I mean, things don't essentially, essences don't mutate. Substances composed of matter and form mutate when the matter loses the form, but then we call that substantial change. If all we're Mm -hmm. saying is God doesn't undergo substantial change, then I want to say, well, neither do angels. And so how is that? uniquely divine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that can't be what we mean by divine immutability. It's got to mean something more than doesn't undergo substantial change. I think that's pretty much what Bruce Ware leaves us with. He affirms divine immutability, but what he it's the it's an immutability that could that it could apply to glorified saints and angels just as well. Yeah. So everybody brings regulative principles to the text of scripture no matter who you are, no matter if you're in the evangelical community at least. You have to have some kind of a regulative principle when you're engaged in systematics, right? Because the Bible has, um, and this is what you've been saying, the Bible has uh, very anthropomorphic-like language where it talks about God in very humanoid terms, you know, God's walking around the garden um, and so forth. But then we get to the New Testament and we have these lofty theological statements that speak of God as spirit. And, And Jesus says multiple times, no one has ever seen God. Well, hang on, I thought Moses saw God in the cleft of the rock, or at least saw the back of God. So no matter who you are, if you're an evangelical, you're going to engage in systematics, you have to have some kind of a regulative principle by which you can understand how to relate these seemingly contradictory passages, right? So everybody has to do it. And again, it comes down to what is your ultimate principle? And for the classical theists is we're going to uphold God's ultimate ultimacy. That is non-negotiable for us. So There's anyway... A- that, that's a great point. And the, obviously, people are going to ask the question, well, then how do I settle upon the regulative principle? Uh, is, you know, is, isn't that what people, is the regulative principle, does the Bible furnish the regulative principle? Or do I have to go outside of scripture to reason and natural theology to get the regulative principle? Um, I mean, that's, I think that's then where the discussion escalates. Uh, and it should, and, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it should, yeah. No, that is a that is the right next question, right, uh, to ask. And I, I guess I'd want to say to that, first of all, um, yes, natural theology cannot conflict with scripture because the author of nature and scripture is one, and so, so therefore the book of nature and the book of scripture will not conflict. If they seem to be in conflict, the problem is one of our understanding. Um, just in principle, I want to say that, but. Uh, I think the answer, though, is that no. The Bible does furnish the principle, the, the governing principle, um, and it and it furnishes actually in its very opening words, uh, which is in the beginning God. And if any interpretation that you give of anything subsequently said of God requires an undoing of this absolute primacy of being, uh, then at that point we're not talking about God as scripture understands, and we're talking perhaps about one of the gods of the nations who's kind of, and this is how the gods of the nations are. The gods of the nations are very mutualistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, They give, I mean, of the pagan religions, ancient Near Eastern, Greek, Roman, uh, they're they're full of passions. They're multi-parted. They're definitely in time, and they're definitely being affected by the things that we do and say. 
And if God accommodates himself to speak of himself in those terms, we understand that as an accommodation of revelation, not an accommodation of being, else we lose his absolute primacy, which scripture begins with. Um, and so I, th I think that's, so you're going to deflate, maybe put it this way, Anthony, a way to think of it. Some piece of the biblical record in terms of your interpretation, uh, in terms of its control, in terms of its conceptual control is going to be deflated. And I don't mean deflated in the sense of falsified. I mean deflated in the sense of isn't necessarily the controlling concern, but needs to be subordered to the other. Um, you're either if you if you side with mutualism, you will have to deflate the Bible's own explicit testimony to God's absolute existential primacy. From him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11, 36. You will have to deflate the literal understanding of that text to accommodate a literal understanding of God being grieved in his heart. Yeah. And so it's not a question of, I read the Bible literally, you read the Bible anthropomorphically exactly. or anthropomorphically. Exactly. Actually, it, you will be forced to, things I read literally, you will be forced to read metaphorically if you read these other passages literally. Yes. And so the real, so I think the real question is, does my interpretation render God one of the things that is caused to be. And then if it does, my interpretation is wrong. Um, if if God is a made-to-be thing or something that depends upon an actualizer of being in him for my interpretation to be right, then I'm then I'm doing it wrong. It's it's got to be God as creator and all that is entailed in being absolute creator that is the controlling mechanism to to then to let a controlling mechanism be something like, and so he relented or he was grieved in his heart, or his bowels were turned over within him, or the waxing and waning of manifested uh, you know, wrath and favor. Um, if we allow those to do the controlling, we will lose the creator-creature distinction. It, will, it must yes. be relativized. Um, and then you've lost everything, in my judgment. I, mean, I, I totally to agree. Melodramatic, but I, I mean to be dramatic, just not melodramatic. You do lose everything if you lose Totally that. agree. Absolutely. Well, maybe we can transition a little bit here. Um, most of your book is um, dedicated to explaining and defending um, what you refer to as the significant, significant doctrinal flashpoints, um, which center around uh, those central doctrines of classical theism, uh, divine immutability, divine simplicity, divine eternity. Um, and I actually think the, the nature of classical theism is sometimes best explained um, by looking at these various divine attributes. So maybe we can just briefly take each in turn. Um, so in your book, you first tackle um, the doctrine of immutability. So what do classical theists mean when they say that God is immutable? Simply that he doesn't change. Uh, and that, and by that, we mean in any respect, um, because I can, I can speak about something that doesn't change relative to other kinds of changes. Like I haven't changed from being a human to something not human, even though I've, I've gotten taller and grayer and balder and all, all sorts of things. And uh, hopefully better in other way, better in some ways, and maybe breaking down in other ways. And I undergo changes, but there are also things that aren't changing, so to speak. There are things that are persisting through the changes. Um, when we say that God doesn't change, we mean both substantially, he doesn't become not God, or accidentally, uh, which is to say there's nothing that, as it were, inheres in his nature, thereby qualifying it. Um, so, and, and I think this is really where the flashpoint is, is that modern theistic mutualists do allow for what historically we would have called 
um, accidental changes. I, I think they're all, at least the conservative ones that I'm engaging in this book are all very uniform that God doesn't, ev- there's no like evolution from one species to another. Um, of course, technically God isn't a species because there's no specifying difference over against mm-hmm. genus because he's simple, but I, I'll just bracket that out for a second and say they all affirm uh, that God is not in some absolute sense evolved from some other kind of being and isn't evolving into a kind of being. But as I said before, I think that that with regard to the theological distinction of God in the world, that's a rather trivial point only in so much as you could just say the same thing about humans and angels. I'm just picking humans and angels because they are because of our immortal soul and because angels are naturally immortal given that they're not composed of substance and, or uh, form and matter. Um, and if what I can, this is maybe a test I, I run through my mind, Anthony. Could I say, whatever I'm about to say about God, could I say the exact same thing without qualification about a holy angel? That's my test. Like Gabriel or Raphael, if you want to pick an apocryphal angel, like the holy angels are my, um, they're my grid in a certain sense because they are the nearest to God in nature among the creatures. A real, a nice test case is to say, could my doctrine of immutability, God does not change, is the way I'm saying it equally applicable without qualification to a holy angel? The answer is yeah, yes. Well, I, I can hear the response. Well, no, but angels do change uh, because they were created from nothing, except that creation ex nihilo isn't a change. It's not a mutation because there's no from which there's no what it was. Nothing goes through such a change. It's an absolute coming to be, in which case then even creation is not a mutation. Um, so if I, so that's my question. Does a holy angel fit my description? It was a friend of mine some years ago who brought this up. I, I We were in a conversation uh, and I said, I said, you know, St. Thomas's theology or Thomas Aquinas's theology would just would not fit this mutualistic modern evangelical doctrine. There's nowhere where it fits. And my friend said, oh, I disagree. Um, I think it does fit in Thomas Aquinas's theology. And I said, you're kidding. Like, this is not classical theism. He said, he said no, it, it with a few qualifications and a little bit of tinkering, it fits pretty nicely into his angelology. Uh, and then it occurred to me, right? They are there. There's no. There's no. Unho- there's no unholiness in them. There's no wickedness in them. Um, they are immutable in and immortal in a certain sense. They're not composed of matter and form, so there aren't major essential constituents that could possibly even come apart in them. Um, and and I, you know, you kind of go down the list and you realize, you know, with a with a little bit of now, Thomas doesn't think they're creators, and these theistic mutualists do believe God's creators. So there obviously would be some differences, but. Maybe like 75% of it was pretty much holy angel theology, not really God. So I think that's a, um, in fact, in some respects, uh, it's even higher than that because Aquinas will argue that in a certain respect, angels are impassable given that they don't have a um, yes. the passive potency of matter. So there's a certain kind of impassibility uh, in which they aren't moved and affected by us. Uh, and in, in some ways, actually, a lot of the theistic mutualists have a God who's more mutable and more passable than like a Thomistic angel. The angels, be. right. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of, lo- it's a pretty mm-hmm. low grade angel, barely an angel. Um, well, if your theology results in a God who's barely an angel plus creator, then you need like, something theology. isn't right. Something isn't right. And so I think when we when classical theists say immutable, we mean that God does not undergo substantial or accidental changes. An accidental change would be like acquiring a new state of mind, having a new actuality of thought, uh, movements from unconscious to conscious. 
Um, you, you'll find arguments for that, for a movement from unconscious or subconscious to consciousness in a, Calv in a modern Calvinist like John Feinberg uh, in his book, No One Likes Like Him. He talks about prayer uh, as actually something that brings thought to mind up to the level of consciousness in God. And he says, this is what makes prayer meaningful. Uh, I pray and God, who's not actually thinking of something X, Y, or Z, begins to actually think of or in, be intentional about a thing because of my operation upon God. I mean, that would be an example of how- So you actualize some potential in God when you pray. Yeah. God is potentially actually thinking of something, but not actually thinking of it until you stir him up uh, to think of it. Uh, whereas the classical theist is going to deny that the world in any way actualizes God, but it's not just the world. It's also that God himself doesn't actualize God. Kind of back to getting out of the world and into Bart's notion of God as both agent and patient. God's the doer and the done unto, so that for Bart, God really is producing new states of being in God. He's the, he's the operator and the operated upon. Classical theism is denying that as well and saying God is in fact pure act and that he's not composed of act and passive potency. For change to take place, for there to be a change in a thing, there must be passive potency, or we might say in more modern language, a an unrealized capacity for that thing. Like right now, we're talking, I'm sitting, you're sitting. I'm not pot I'm not pot potentially sitting, I'm actually sitting. I'm potentially standing, but not actually standing. Um, for me to actually stand, it, for me to change into the state of actually standing, I first need to be possibly standing, which is not actually standing. We know the difference between act and, and passive potency. Um, this would If God were to undergo change, then there would have to be something in God that wasn't actuality, namely the potentiality for the actuality that he would then have to receive as some new state of being. God is fullness of being. He's infinite in being. He's bound. He's unbounded in his blessedness of being. His name is I am, but not I am in a contracted way. So I can say I am, and but I always can, every time I use this of myself or Anthony, if you say it of yourself, we're contracting our little statements of I am. So I say I am sitting. Well, now I'm now I'm qualifying my is or my my being with a certain state. So I've I've now contracted the I am to I am this or I am speaking. That's an action. I am I am doing this. I'm speaking. Um, or a relation like I am married uh, is a statement about a an accidental relation, not an accident meaning a mistake. Just so we're clear on that, in case my wife should watch the video, <laughs> accident in the sense of. I'm a substance. I was a man before we were married. We entered into that relationship and I came to be a married man. Ad cadere or accident means that which comes upon a thing. The state of marriage came upon me uh, through, through vows that we exchanged. Um, what we're saying with regard to God is that states of being don't come upon him. And the reason is because states of being aren't lacking in him. And I think this is this is the fundamental reason. If God is infinite fullness of being, there's nothing he can become because there's nothing he isn't. Now, I know people will say, well, he isn't forgetful. So there's something he isn't. But forgetful isn't a state of being. It's a state of non-being. It's a state of not knowing. Um, so sometimes people will people will pick things like, well, God isn't God isn't sinful. He's not a liar. See, there's something I can do, lie, that God can't do. But actually, what lying is, is a failure to tell the truth when you ought to tell the truth. Um, it's so that it's actually not being, it's a lack of being where being should be. So if you take a privative account of contracted states of being, sitting, 
is a contracted state of being. Um, it's actually a it's actually a lack of standing in a certain respect. There's it's not that God is lacking being. Um, what we what we could say is that God lacks a lack of being, but we shouldn't mistake that for actually for lacking being. Uh, in which case, then there's nothing that God can be that God isn't. There's no potential to actualize or realize. Then, if that's the case, then there's no change He can undergo. Great. Um, in my own experience, I find that the hardest pill for my fellow Christians to swallow when it comes to uh, the classical conception of God is the doctrine of impassibility, that God is without passions. Um, now, I was raised in the charismatic Pentecostal wing of American evangelicalism, where there was a premium placed on the affections and the emotions. And I think it's especially difficult for Christians coming from this tradition to accept the idea that God doesn't progress through emotional states. But James, why is it important that we deny that there are passions in God? This is so. This is a topic that I address kind of only obliquely in this book. I I, I mention I gesture toward it a little bit, and it's certainly entailed in so much of uh, what's being written. I deal with it in some other uh, chapters, uh, articles. But there's I, okay. First of all, it sounds wrong, Anthony. If I say God isn't passionate about you or about anything. That immediately triggers uh, a certain interpretation. Now, not a correct one, but an understandable one, which is then he doesn't care. Uh, he doesn't care about evil. I mean, by the way, this is exactly what um, the rebellious returned exiles were saying in the book of Malachi, that the wicked abound and God doesn't care. Mm -hmm. um, this is that kind of, I mean, clearly the Bible the Bible is opposed to the notion of God who doesn't care. And the people who say God doesn't care are in fact, are in fact blaspheming uh, God. So if I say God is without passions and that language, at least in our kind of Anglo tradition, uh, we get it from Archbishop Cramner, who puts that in Article 1 of the 39 Articles of Religion, that God is without body parts or passions. And then the language carries over into the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Baptists, both General Baptists and Particular Baptists, um, uh, and even classical Arminians like James Arminius would all affirm uh, that God is without passions. Now, that's not an original Protestant doctrine. In fact, it's terribly unoriginal, you're going to find exactly that kind of language in Athanasius of Alexandria, uh, Augustine of Hippo, uh, certainly in Thomas Aquinas, but also you're going to find the same notions in, in Anselm of Canterbury. So um, what do we mean by that? Then? We can't mean God doesn't care. That, that's so emphatically unbiblical yeah. in every conceivable way. How could Christians down the ages in, in Africa, Western Asia, and Southern Europe Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Calvinist, Arminian, and all various denominations. <laughs> um, uh, well, and Luther, let's put in Lutheran Orthodox as well. How could they all have once said God is without passions and read the, and read the same Bible that we're reading? Um, that God. Well, it kind of it, it comes down to this: um, that passion is a way of coming to care, if indeed you need to have concern, so to speak, or care stirred up in you. 
passion means that which is, passion is something that is undergone or experienced. It's a state of being you enter into by an undergoing, literally passio or pati. We get our word patience or patient from this as well, means uh, to undergo or to submit or to experience. And the notion is that a passion is what you come to possess when you undergo the operation of an agent upon yourself. You have a passion is a received and actualized state of being. It's something that is produced by an operative power working upon you. Uh, and so maybe the operative power is you're watching some kind of horrible abuse of other humans. And the way that affects you is it stirs up a holy, righteous anger and a detestation and even a sympathy and love for those that are being victimized. Um, and what's happened, all this is very good, by the way, but it's due to our finitude where we have to have our concern stirred up because our concern is only potential until something actualizes it. The same thing could be true. We could say this of love. I mean, I I once did not love my children, not because I was a bad father, but because I wasn't a father uh, at all. I was potentially a father and therefore potentially had a father's love, whatever that unique thing is, the way that parents love children. Um, but I didn't have it. And so I can say, you know, there was a time I didn't love my son because I didn't have a son to love and I didn't know him. I, I and, and when I came to know, when I had a son and when I came to know him, then I came to love him. And it was in fact, his loveliness as my son that in fact, stirred my heart uh, to love my son. Uh, to, and I'm going to leave out my daughters to love my daughters. Um, why is that a passion? It's a passion because it's a state of love I entered into by undergoing an experience that produced a change in me. But God doesn't undergo experiences. He's not an experiencer. I think Herbert McCabe in his little book, God Matters, um, great book, great book. In the 80s, mm -hmm. great book, says that the knowledge of God cannot be that of an experiencer confronted by what he experiences, because experience is an undergoing in which something operates upon you so as to actualize potential knowledge and then potential concern and certain virtues in you are then actualized or set in motion by what you experience. But nothing actualizes or sets God in motion because God doesn't lack being. Um, so does this mean God doesn't care? It, it's actually somewhat counterintuitive until we kind of dig into it a little bit. What, it, what the doctrine of impassibility means is not that God doesn't care. What it means is that God cannot be made to care. And I think that's the important thing. A passion is a made-to-be state of being. It's, And I should say this about passions. Um, they're mutable, they're temporal, they're caused to be, and they can all be good, but they are. that's the stuff of creaturehood. That's the stuff of creature right. that requires a paucity or a lack of being that then receives an actualization through an experience undergone. But if God isn't lacking actuality because his name is just I am, if he is fullness of boundless being and good, then there can't be a state of mind or intentionality or care, we should put it this way, into which God enters by the operation of something upon God because God actually cares with the infinite fullness of his being timelessly and boundlessly. In fact, really what impassibility is saying is that God doesn't have passions because God can't care more. Uh, and that what we're saying is that God cares with the infinite, with the infinite unboundedness of his own divine goodness, which is his being. So that if God loved you passionately, that might sound great. Oh, passionate love sounds like intensity. There's actually a love 
that is infinitely more intense than passionate love. And it's impassable love, love that is identical with the unbounded being of God. God is love so that if his love were a passion, it would be a state of being he possessed that would be really distinct from himself. Like I possess the state of being seated, but I'm really distinct from being seated. And I know this because when I get up and walk out the door in a little while, I'm going to lose the state of being seated, but I'm going to still be me so that I and my being seated aren't the same reality in me. They're distinct in me. God and God's love are not distinct. God's love is God. Uh, so that he loves with the infinite fullness of his being, which is a which is an, an intensity that is completely incommensurable with passionate love. Passionate love is an intense, created, mutable, temporal state of being. I want to yeah. say, I don't want God. If God loves you passionately, pity you. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Like if God loves you passionately, that's terrible. Actually, what you want is God who loves not passionately, because that's an accidental, mutable, temporal, corruptible state of being, corruptible only in the sense of metaphysically. Um, but if he loves you with the with the fullness, with the, with the boundless intensity of his own I am, of his own being, because God is love, if he loves you without passion, if he loves you just with his own self, um, that's, incalcu- that's an incalculable magnitude of love and intensity. And I think this is, this is the beautiful thing in divine impassibility that's missed by the critics. The critics think, well, then God doesn't care. What we're really saying is God cares boundlessly. Um, so they they often will accuse classical theism of having a God who's sort of like cold and distant. In fact, our God couldn't be hotter or nearer. <laughs> if I could, classical theism is exactly the opposite. The implications so are yeah. so exactly the opposite of what critics like Clark Pinnock and and Greg Boyd and and even uh and even of John and even John Frame's criticism of certain aspects of classical theism. It's exactly the opposite, actually, of what the critics are saying. Yeah, and, and they'll often say, "Well, your God is is somehow static or immobile or lifeless." And I think, well, you you just don't understand what it means to be pure act. If you're saying yeah, these things about God, then you don't understand what pure actuality is. God is the fullness of existence, lacking yeah. nothing that, you know, it, uh, could, could be part of Immobile would be bad. Immobile would be bad if by immobile you meant lacks a state of being that he should or could move into. Correct. But if you're immobile because you're infinite actuality, you're perfect. Because there's no there's no past, then then that's a perfect boundless immobility, which is to say, this is an actual this is a dynamism more dynamic than the most frenetically movable thing in the world. Absolutely. Um, but I, yeah. I I think that's the beauty of this. I I hope I I hope that modern Christians rediscover classical theism uh because there's a there's a kind of indescribable, incomprehensible wonder and loveliness uh, in it that should just buoy up our hearts. It's so worship-inducing. Um, it's so worship-inducing, and it gives it gives you confidence. I mean, you don't want a God who goes through states of passions. You don't want a God who changes. I mean, this is something I was talking to some of my uh, a Christian theology group that we have at our church. I mean, look, you according to Scripture, you are going to be living forever with God in the future. There will be no end to your days. Do you want a God who's changeable in his passions? I mean, he, you will have to trust that this God is going to be favorable toward favorably disposed to you forever into the future. No, you need an immutable God. You need a God who doesn't go through passions or states of being to ground your confidence. 
you know, in, in a relationship with this God for eternity. Another thing that I think that Christians often do, and it's, it's very natural, we often, we often use as the paradigm for our understanding of what it means to be a, a perfect being, we use the paradigm of ourselves and we kind of project it into the heavens, right? So we think about a human being who would be passionless, who didn't go through states of passions, and we would think, well, that's a defect. That, that's a, a way of being a human that is defective, right? That's not, that's not being a perfect human being if you don't experience these passions. And we just get off on the wrong foot, don't we, when we do that. It's, it's, it's just the backwards way of going about thinking about God. Um, whatever God experiences in his perfect immutable being is not less than what we experience as humans, you know, in our changing states of being. It's greater. So to say that yeah. God lacks passions that we have, we're not denigrating the being of God. We're exalting it. I mean, it's Absolutely. it's like what, what what I hear often. I think this was again Edward Fazer who said this in a podcast. But you know, Christians don't seem to have the problem when thinking about God's knowledge, right? Uh, God doesn't have to go through a discursive reasoning process, right? He doesn't have to first have premise A, premise B. Ah, I see the conclusion. No, God's knowledge, He sees all truth at once, right? He is a completely aware of all being at all times. He doesn't have to reason through a process of, of change, which reasoning is a, a process of change. Now, most Christians will think about that and say, yeah, that's, that seems like a greater state of being. But for some reason, when it comes to passions, and we want to say the same thing about God, that God doesn't have to change through these different uh, states of being, undergoing different passions. For some reason, we think that that, that is somehow denigrating to the being of God, which, um, as we've been saying here, it, it's just the opposite. God, however God exists in the fullness of his being, it is a state of existence that infinitely, um, you know, goes far beyond what we experience as human beings in our states, uh, our changing states of, of passion. So I think um, yeah, there's so something that's... to like Ludwig Feuerbach's argument that Christianity and theism is really just a projection of human ideals onto the heavens. Um, and that's sort of his critique of theism generally. The, the weird thing about that, Anthony, is that that's that's not an entirely inaccurate description of what many Christians now do uh, with regard sure. to certain things, not comprehensively, but with regard to certain things. So we, you're right. We take there's a hidden premise, by the way, in the argument that you brought up that if God isn't passionate, then he doesn't care. And if God doesn't undergo changes, then he can't be good and perfect in the ways that he ought to be. The The hidden premise is that God lacks something that God needs, and that if he doesn't go out and get it through some experience or operation, um, that he's going to himself be, as you said, defective, um, which is an interesting, it's an interesting notion because there's a real sense in which um, defect means that which is, that, that which is, that which fails to be made. And so there is a certain literal sense, if you want to be eggheaded about this, in which God is defective in the sense, but not really, in the sense that God isn't even a made thing at all. Right. Um, He's not an artifactor. Yeah. It, <laughs> even it's interesting. In Francis Turretin, I came across a phrase some years ago in which he says, God is perfect, comma, as it were. 
And I like it, it jolted him. I'm like, perfect. As it were, you better say he's perfect and not qualify <laughs> it. But he does qualify it because perfect means that which is completely or thoroughly made. Fact, F E C. Like we get our word fact or fact, fact, carry factum from this. Technically, God isn't perfect because he's not made. But because when we talk about something being perfect, being made, uh, completely, the idea is lacking in nothing. And so we use the lacking in nothingness uh, idea of perfect and we transfer it to God. But even there, our language is being used in an accommodated way. God uh -huh. is a con it used to be that classical theists, Catholic or Protestant, were aware of this kind of human shape of our language, and they knew how to qualify it. Turretin knew to say God is perfect as it were, if what you mean is literally according to the um according to the lexical definition of perfect um because he, he has something in common with something perfect but he's he's beyond completely made because he's not made at all right um fullness great. of being so in chapter three um you tackle the classical doctrine of divine simplicity um by the way for those listening dr dolezal has also published an excellent book-length treatment on the doctrine of divine, uh, divine simplicity called God without parts. So definitely want to check that one out. So James, what do we mean when we say that God is simple and why is it such an important element for classical theism? Maybe the, as far as negative theology goes, the most important uh, as sort of the tail side of the coin with pure actuality, uh, pure actuality and the implication of divine simplicity that follows from it are in some respects, the, the, sort of thing without which nothing, even immutability. I start with immutability in the book because that's where so much of the sort of mischief is going on. But I do, but by the second, by the next chapter, I'm trying to get into the fact, chapter three, that in fact, what underlies this is a loss of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, so when we say God is simple, uh, we don't mean it in the customary sense of dense or thick or simplistic or even easy to understand. In fact, he's incomprehensible. I might just even add right here, Anthony, that he's incomprehensible because he's simple. It's because of his absolute sim simplicity that he's incomprehensible to us. So what do we mean by that? We just mean that God is not composed of parts. Um, and by a, I do try to give a definition, a, a as universally applicable definition of a part. If we're going to say God doesn't have these things, parts, then we're going to have to say what we mean by a part. Um, and a part is anything in an entity that is less than the whole without which the whole would be different than it is. And I would say that applies to material composites, to metaphysical composites. Um, that's my attempt at sort of a one-size-fits-all. What do I mean by a part? Um, so when we say, and I think the basic logic of divine simplicity, by the way, is pretty widespread among Christians which is really this, and it's back to the whole re rationale for classical theism, that nothing, God does not depend on what is not God to be God. I, I mean, I could stop the average person in the pew on Sunday after church and say, does God depend upon what is not God to be God? And they might think, well, that's a funny way of asking the question, but it's not too difficult, I think. And most would say, no, that doesn't sound right to me then I would argue that that person is already in principle committed to the doctrine of divine simplicity for the reason that wholes depend upon parts for some aspect of their being. 
I don't want to say actuality because passive potency can be a part, which is not an actuality. So it's a state of being, but it's not a state of being in act. And so I want to say that parts, they don't just simply depend upon parts for actuality. I also depend upon parts for potentiality. In other words, I have to have the like being able to stand, which I'm not currently standing, being able to stand is a real state of being in me. I you could you could say, you could slow it down and say, I really am able to stand. So that there's a real sense in which it's not absolute non-being, it's just not actuality. It's that passive potency state of being. So that's a part. And I have parts that are I have parts that are in potency and I have parts that are in actuality. Um, and I'm composed of bits and I'm composed in multiple ways. I'm 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 complex. I'm more complex than even an angel. Um, I'm composed of matter and form. Uh, my or put it differently, my soul and my body are not the same. I think Jesus affirms this when he says, "Fear, don't fear those that could destroy the body, but him who could destroy body and soul." He seems to distinguish those two. Um, that my soul is not my body, my body is not my soul, and what I am is I'm actually a, a unit of those two things together. Um, I'm also a composite in other ways. I'm composed of substance and accident. Um, so my substance would be the man, you know, James the man. And then the accident would be James the man plus talking, James the man plus balding, James the man plus married, James the man plus running, which I only do when I absolutely have to. Huh. Um, you know, but there's these are also these are action or James the man um, in pain, uh, James the man hurting because some because I stubbed my toe on something. Then I underwent. So I'm an undergoer. I'm a doer. I'm in relations. I'm. These are all things I am over and above being me because I because there are times when I'm not sitting and I'm not and my toe hasn't been stubbed uh, and I wasn't married once upon a time. And so these are all states of being that came upon me. So an accident is that which exists in a substance and cannot exist in itself. So like my state of being doesn't have an existence apart from me. It depends upon me for its existence. Um my like when I leave this room, my sitting isn't going to be like waiting here for me. It's going to be gone. <laughs> yeah. um, the same thing, though, inversely, though. So while my accidents depend upon my substantial existence for their existence, there's a certain sense in which I depend upon them. I need something over and above my humanity and over and above my substance to be actually in a state of being seated or a state of speaking or a state of being married. Um, these are all, so these are states of being that give me forms of being that I would lack without them. And they gain from me existence that they would lack without me. And so there's a kind of give and take, uh, form, uh, accidents actualize me formally and my substance actualizes them existentially as they exist through the existence of my substance. So there's a, there's a, but the whole, here's the whole point, but the total package is not reducible uh, to either one of those points, you couldn't just say James is human. You have to say James is human plus talking plus married plus seated. Um, and I'm not even James is human. Um, even my humanity is reducible to a formal part, my soul and a material part, the body that has the soul. Um, so that I'm and here's the point. As a man, I'm dependent on all sorts of things that are not this man to be this man. I'm dependent on a soul. I'm dependent on a body substantially. And then I'm dependent upon other forms, relations, actions, passions, uh, qualities, like a tan or not being tanned. I'm dependent on all sorts of other forms over and above my humanity to be a man of this sort. 
sortleness comes through accidents, um, accidental sortleness. All right. So what, what, what the point is, I'm reducible to all sorts of things, not me, just to be me. Um, and you could say with a relatively, relatively more s- simple or less complex angels too, in as much as mm-hmm. an angel can go from being morally good to morally evil, uh, as so many of them did when they fell and rebelled, um, an angel can acquire knowledge, can have its understanding actualized as when God inserts natural forms into them at their creation or as mm-hmm. they make discoveries about free creatures as they operate in time. So that angels have knowledge that is waiting to be actualized or receives its actuality from some. So there, these are cause states of being. An angel and an angel's knowledge cannot be strictly identical in as much as angels can come to know uh, at least supernaturally, what they didn't know. Um, and so they are also composed of act and passive potency. All right. My point, though, is this. Th- those are metaphysical compositions. And then there are material compositions, bits outside of bits that build bodies up. Everything composed of parts depends upon its parts for some aspect of its being. And the parts precede the holes. In other words, the parts are more fundamental than the holes that depend upon them in some respect. Um, easiest thing to think of is like an automobile, and you can think of a you can think of an automobile uh, with six thousand different parts. And if you could see all six thousand parts, the potential of an automobile would be there in front of you, but not the actuality because there'd be no um, there'd be no togetherness. They lack unity. So you can have all the parts, but then you need something more than the parts. You also need a principle of unification. Something needs to account for the togetherness rather than the separableness of the parts if the parts actually are part of a whole. Like if you looked at 6,000 parts of a car, every one of them is potentially a part of a car, but at that point, none of them is actually a car part until it's integrated into the whole. The whole depends upon the parts. Uh, the parts are not the the parts lack something that the whole possesses. So holes are greater than parts. Holes depend upon parts. God is not a whole that is greater than something upon which he depends as the first cause of being. And this is actually maybe the point, Anthony. Parts are causes. Parts are causes. Yeah. And if we can get that in our heads, that parts, metaphysical or physical, are causes, then it will become very clear, I think, click quickly, why we shouldn't say, however we say God is, composed of parts can't be the right thing to say. Um, yeah. And and the way you put it in the book is if God is not simple, that means he's doubly dependent, right? And this is what you've just been saying, but I like this, this way of putting it because it just sums it up very succinctly. He would be, first of all, dependent on the parts that make him up and that determine his being. And we don't want to say that if God is the first cause, if God is the ultimate reality. We don't want to look behind God or at the base of God or that which makes God as the source of God's ultimacy, right? So he would be firstly dependent on the parts that make him up. But then secondly, he would be dependent on an external cause that we would have to appeal to in order to to explain, just as you said, how all of the parts of God have come together into the being of God. And the problem is, and of course, no evangelical Christian wants to do that. No one wants to look to the parts that are fundamental to the being of God. No one, certainly no one wants to look, look to an external cause that explains the parts coming together in God. But yet there are a lot of, of evangelical Christian theologians and philosophers who they, they want to affirm God as the ultimate being, 
but they, they want to deny divine simplicity. And from my perspective, what you're left with is a kind of brute contingency at that point, right? Because you have a God who is composed of parts with no ultimate explanation as to why we have this particular God composed of these particular parts, right? So in that case, it's like a, a kind of bruteness. And we don't even let atheists get away with this kind of bruteness, do we? You know, an atheist wants to appeal to, I don't know, maybe the universe is the ultimate being or whatever happened at the Big Bang, whatever that state was, maybe that's ultimate. Well, we don't let them get away with that because that doesn't explain anything. Right. We want an explanation that is a sufficient reason for the existence of absolutely everything else. And a God who is composed of parts cries out for an explanation still. Right. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's uh, I mean, to put it in religious terms, if your God's composed of parts, you need to stop worshiping it immediately. And you need <laughs> to go and find that which accounts for him because everything composed of parts does require an accounting more fundamental than the composite. Um, like if you want to take my my Toyota Camry and you want to account for its operations, it's even being a car, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to bring in fuel injectors into the discussion, a fuel pump, a fuel tank, a front bumper, a back bumper, four tires, an axle, a steering column, an air compressor for the air conditioning. You're going to have to appeal to thousands and thousands of things, none of which is a Toyota Camry, to account for my Toyota Camry. And then if you say, oh, well, that's why it's a Toyota Camry, even that wouldn't be a sufficient explanation because those thousands and thousands of parts could easily be laid out on the floor of a, of a factory somewhere. Uh, and not together. And so That's you right. have to account Uncomposed. not just mm -hmm. for the, the parts aren't just the parts account for this and that and the other about the whole, but then something's got to account for why the parts are unified rather than not. Um, yeah. And it's not. And, and at this point, as soon as you say, well, God's composed <clears throat> of parts, but that doesn't require a unifier to me, to me, that's special pleading. Uh, because right. what you're actually saying is I don't have to give a sufficient reason for the togetherness of the parts, or you insert that the togetherness is its own reason, but there's nothing about that that actually is self-evident. Uh, it's just a all. brute fact. It just becomes it's a brute, brute fact. fact. You know, I, I used to have this recurring thought when I was a child. I don't know how old I was, but I used to think, man, we are so lucky that God just happens to be the way he is. Right, man, aren't we lucky that he's kind and he's merciful and he's loving? You know, because in my mind, it was like, how is it that we just have this God with all these great making properties when I don't understand, we could have had another kind of God, right? With different kinds of properties. Man, we really lucked out. And at the time when I was young, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't thinking deeply enough, wasn't considering the principle of sufficient reason, for example that my my thought about God wasn't, I wasn't thinking about God as the ultimate principle, right? You need an ultimate, ultimate principle that um, has the sufficient reason for the way it is grounded in its very being, right? That you can't look for the way that God is to something else or else that other thing would be ultimate. So doctrine of divine simplicity, just so, it's so difficult for people to wrap their minds around and rightly so, it is a difficult doctrine and it's very strange, right? It's a very strange way. We really don't have any experience with a absolutely simple being, right? In, in our experience of the physical world, everything that of which we are familiar is composed, 
So it's, it's just very difficult for us to think about it, but it is absolutely critical if we're going to be thinking about God as, as uh, the ultimate reality. It's not the kind of thing of which you could have a sense experience. Um, yes. But it is the kind of thing for which it's not, this is why it's not negotiable. It's not negotiable. I'll just, I'll, I'll, like when people say, well, does the scripture require this? I want to say absolutely the scripture requires the absolute simplicity of God. And this is why if all things are from him, through him and to him, and yet God were composed of parts, then it wouldn't be true that all things are from him and through him and to him, because there'd be something, namely his parts from which he is derived. And those parts would have to be as all parts are to the beings composed of them prior ontologically yes. to him. He would be uh, and from so and through, he would be, he himself would be from and through his parts. Something not himself. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you couldn't say all things are from him, through him and to him, because there'd be things not himself that actually were prior to him. And he himself was from and through them. And yeah. so I guess what I want to say, does, does the doctrine of God's absolute simplicity find a necessary ground in a, an explicit text of Holy scripture, every text of Holy scripture that indicates the primal Universal, universal causality of God requires a strong doctrine of simplicity in order to be true. That is right. Absolutely. Well, I, we're running out of time here. So I want to quickly just say something about the doctrine of divine eternity. Um, all evangelicals confess today that God is eternal. However, there's two ways to conceptualize this uh, doctrinally and philosophically. We can think about God as being atemporal, outside of time, or we can think about God as being omnitemporal, right? Existing at all time, times. Now, classical theists are committed to the first way of thinking about divine eternity, atemporality, or that God exists outside of time. Why is that? Uh, again, to be, if what time is, is a measure of motion, and we can, you know, you can get into the discussions, uh, and Augustine is fascinating on this in uh in book 11 of his confessions and also parts of the city of God, um, we can ask the question of whether the measure is, you know, in the soul or whether the soul is the measure, or whether the measure exists objectively outside the soul. Um, and either way, however you answer that question, um, what time measures is motion and what motion is, is movement from one state of being to another. In other words, motion is change and time is the counting of uh however wherever the counting is wherever the enumeration is whether it's in the thing or in the soul um doesn't matter it's measuring motion it's measuring change so that if god is pure act there's no state of being for which god is potential but not actual and then there's a motion into that state of being if there's no such thing because god is without parts so there, if God, if God were composed of act plus passive potency, and we've said already that passive potency is a is a prerequisite for change, and if there's no passive potency in God by which He could become X, Y, or Z because He's fullness of being, then there's consequently no motion in God. And if there's no motion in God or change, then there's nothing to enumerate with regard to motion. Ergo timeless, but not timeless in the sense of, and we have to distinguish here, we tend to think of God's being, God having an eternal present, but we really have to distinguish between a temporal present and an eternal present. And I think the temptation, right. especially for critics of our temporality, critics of classical theism, is that they tend to start with the notion of our present. And what our present is, is our present is a slice of reality. I mean, so thin 
it's time so index. Th- it doesn't stand still long enough for you to like see it. It's almost timeless. Your present is almost timeless in as much as it's instantaneously moving from future to past. In fact, by the time you end up saying now, uh, the the N it's of now is already in the past yeah. before you get to the ow of now. Um, and so there's a there's a real sense in which even if I say right now, you could just slow that down into a very long sound bite, uh, which would actually be almost an infinitely number of sound bites, it would seem like, d- dividing inter- internally. Uh, and so there's a sense of which our present is in fact a moment that stands, uh, ten- it tends toward non-being, if I can put it that way. Your now is a fl- what we call a flowing now, or a, 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 a fl- it's a flowing now. It's a moving now. It's a now that's dying a million deaths uh, a nanosecond, so to speak, as it flows away from you so that your now never stands. It's never as soon as you have it, you've lost it. There's a kind of there's a there's a flowing now. And the temptation is to think that we take a flowing now, which, by the way, the flowing now is to not be what you will be and to no longer be what you were. It is. a There's a paucity of being in your flowing now. Uh the temptation is to think that what d- divine timelessness is, is one of those slices frozen forever. And it feels like lifelessness. Yeah. Uh, whereas the classical theologians would have said that there's a, a nuke stans, a standing now, as opposed to a, as opposed to a nuke fluens, a flowing now. And the standing now is actually not, God's present is not like our present, a little slice sandwiched between what is no more and what will be the, the flowing away from and the flowing unto, because there's no loss of being flowing away from him. And there's no acquisition of being flowing to him. And so there's no flowing through movement or transition. Actually the fullness of life is in him, but not flowing, not coming, not going, not even being possessed by an experience that would be an undergoing. Rather, it's the infinite boundless fullness of is, and that is God, and that is his present. Um, that's why we say that. Now, it gets into interaction questions that are that are almost insoluble for the human mind, I think. Yeah. Um, I say almost in as much as there are better attempts than others to then say, well, then how does this God, quote unquote, interact with time? Or the world, uh, I think a lot of popular criticism of strict temporality turns on a false premise that for God to act in such a way that produces new effects, so that the termination of His acting in the patient produces newness, wouldn't the newness produced in the patient correspond by transitivity to a newness in God as agent? And there's a um, there's a, I think, a false philosophical. Before it's false theologically, it's false philosophically that, in fact, the way that God acts is similar to the way that I act. I'm a potential actor. I can potentially be a walker, but I'm not currently a walker. But if I actually become a walker by getting up and you know moving about, then what I'm doing is I'm actualizing a new effect, walking on the carpet. But also, there's a newness in my agency as well. And so there's this there's this there's a assumption that the agent who produces new effects must himself undergo a corresponding newness in his agency. But that's a that's a false philosophical premise. The agent qua agent, this is the this is the formula that everyone's looking for. The agent qua agent is not changed by his acts of agency. 
This doesn't mean agents don't change. It means that they don't change because they're agents. They change because they're not pure agents. So when an agent changes, like I become an agent by walking when I'm not walking now, I'm actualizing agency in myself. And, our, and then I'm actualizing a new effect out there in the world, walking about. But it's not because I'm walking that I'm changing. It's because I come to walk. It's because I'm actualizing the potential of agency in myself. So it's not the agents qua agents are not changed by their acts of agency. Only agents qua patients are changed by their That's acts right. of agency. Mm -hmm. And there's this fallacy. I find this in, in Ryan Mullins and other critics of classical uh, awe temporality, um, which assume that any agency in God that produces newness in the effect must correspond to a newness of agency in God, because isn't that how it is with us? Isn't that how it is with angels? It may be that way with us, but it's not because of age. It's not because of our agency that we're changed by our agency. It's because we are not pure agents, but we are agent plus patient, and certain acts of agency have to be actualized. So it's the agent qua patient that undergoes changes when he acts, not the agent qua agent. So when God acts in the world producing temporal effects, there's no philosophical transitivity rule that requires as such that he necessarily underwent a change in producing that effect. Yeah. Uh, there's a great article that came out years ago. I think it's just called um, The Agent Qua Agent Not Changed by Agency or something like this um, in a in a feshrift written in the 50s. Um, and I, I think this is actually the principle that's lacking uh, in a lot of the modern critics of, of classical theism. I'm not saying this solves all challenges or makes all mystery disappear. In fact, it, it just actually gives mystery room to exist um, if we insist upon this. Um, it doesn't dispel the mystery of time and eternity. Sure. Anyway, I, I don't know if you like the analogy of the author and the book, um, but I find this helpful, especially when trying to explain this to people for the first time, you know, the idea of, of God being an eternity and even the idea of, of immutability and, and how can a timeless, unchanging, simple God create a, a creation that is obviously none of those things, that is changing and is temporally bound. Um, and uh, I often think it's helpful to think about an author and the author's book, right? Or, or the, a novel. An author writes a novel, and within this novel, there is a certain kind of chronology, right? It has its own time. I mean, you can uh, one author can write a book that it, that spans one day within within the novel itself, or that spans a thousand years. One author can do this, and one author can can um, write all kinds of changing circumstances and states of being within this novel. And the author, if the author wanted to, could even write him or herself into the story, right? To interact with the characters in the story. And yet the, the chronology, the time, the change that's happening within the book, we have to keep what's happening within the novel distinct from what's, in, what's happening in the author or the agent of that novel. Now, obviously this is an analogy that fails on, on certain levels because in the analogy, the author, the agent is themselves a human being who is going through changes and processes in, in the act of creating the novel. But just erase all of that with God. Um, God doesn't go through any kind of change. He doesn't experience states of being. Like you said, creation is not a motion. Creation is not a change. It is just the simple eternal act of God and bringing about a creation uh, that has its own temporal becoming and time and what have you. But just because the creation is suffused with all of this, 
logically speaking, it doesn't necessitate that there's any of this within the creator. God can be absolutely simple and eternal and immutable and yet produce from eternity a creation that has all of those characteristics of change and, and coming to be and, and what have you. So no, this anyway, is, that's a great, it's a great point. And I, I think it's one that uh, I think Herman Bovink says that, you know, with God, eternity posits time. And I think we should put the shoe on the other foot and say, you know, you can say, well, how can an eternal God create a temporal order? But the more challenging question uh, and more scandalous is how could a temporal God create the temporal order? Um, he would have to, he would have to yeah. then be the absolute cause of an order that actually governed his own being. The, the philosophical absurdities of now there's a mystery in the one, but it's not as it's not absurd on its own terms because it still allows for a sufficient reason, even if it's one that exceeds our ability to imagine. It's, or it's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. Yes. And there and there's a difference uh, for I mean, a, a world of difference. I, I think the other one isn't just a mystery. It's a philosophical absurdity that is repugnant to the human intellect. Yes. I'd much rather have mystery and strangeness than intellectual repugnance. Absolutely. Um, well, well said. Anyway. Well said. Well, James, this has been just fantastic. Unfortunately, we are out of time now. I know in your book, you do cover what is certainly the, I would say, the number one criticism of classical theism, uh, generally um, divine simplicity specifically, and that is, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity. And also there are uh, certain difficulties too when we think about the incarnation, God becoming man. So there are uh, lots left unsaid. So uh, there are um, there are other criticisms too that we could consider here. So all that to say, we'll have to have you back here on Think for Christ and uh, and continue this conversation. But before we say goodbye, would you mind just letting people know um, what you're currently working on and where they can go to find out and interact more with your work? Uh, maybe the easiest place to see my work uh, at no cost to the reader is uh, my page at academia.edu. It's just a repository where I can drop drafts. Uh, uh, sometimes I can put published material up there if the publisher gives permission. So some of those things are the published forms. Some are draft forms of, of different um, articles and reviews. Uh, so at academia.edu and then my name. Uh, I think that's probably the main place, probably some videos on YouTube. I don't have a channel. So if you look for a James Dolezal channel, uh, it'll be a different one. Maybe a guy who like plays music or something. <laughs> um, but if you search on there, there are some things, different different talks uh, over the years, uh, a lot of them on this topic. Um, so those will be places to look. All right. Well, James, thanks again for joining me here on Think for Christ. Uh, it's really been an enjoyable conversation. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to be here.